BOA One Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson, and I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases, especially written for people learning English. Today, John Russell tells us about two recent events in the U.S. concerning the beginnings of COVID-19. Later, Brian Lynn presents this week's technology report. We close with the next part of our U.S. history series. But first, here is John Russell. Governments and health agencies around the world. Have not yet been able to answer an important question: Where did the virus that causes COVID-19 come from? This week, two events have drawn attention to the question of COVID-19's beginnings. The first was a new U.S. Department of Energy (DOE) report, which has not been made public. It suggested, with low confidence. That the virus began with a laboratory leak. That information comes from a person with knowledge of the report, but does not have official permission to discuss it. The DOE's finding was first reported over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal newspaper. The story said the classified or secret report was based on new intelligence. The second event. Was a discussion with Federal Bureau of Investigation (FBI) Director Christopher Ray on Fox News. Ray said, "The FBI has, for quite some time, now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in central China's Wuhan." China has called the suggestion that COVID-19 came from a Chinese laboratory. Baseless. Responding to comments by Ray, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said the involvement of the U.S. intelligence community was evidence enough of the politicization of origin tracing. But others in the U.S. intelligence community suggest that COVID-19's beginnings remain unclear. John Kirby. The spokesman for the National Security Council used the term "consensus," meaning complete agreement, to describe the beginning of COVID. He said, "There is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started." In 2021, officials released a shortened version of an intelligence report. It said that four members of the U.S. intelligence community believed with low confidence that the virus first passed from an animal to a human. A fifth member believed with moderate confidence that the first human infection was linked to a laboratory or lab. Some scientists are open to the lab leak theory. Yet others continue to believe the virus came from animals, mutated, 
and jumped into people. Experts say the true beginning of the pandemic may not be known for many years, if ever. Alina Chen is a molecular biologist at the Broad Institute of Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard. Chen said she is not sure what new intelligence the agencies had. But she suggested it was reasonable to think the intelligence is connected to activities at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. She said a 2018 research proposal, co-written by scientists there and their U.S. collaborators, essentially described a blueprint for COVID-like viruses. Chan added, "Less than two years later." Such a virus was causing an outbreak in the city. The Wuhan Institute had been studying coronaviruses for years. That is because similar viruses like SARS have caused widespread concerns. SARS was a coronavirus that caused a major outbreak starting in 2003. Many experts thought that coronaviruses could be the cause of the next pandemic. No intelligence agency has said they believe the coronavirus that caused COVID-19 was released on purpose. The unclassified 2021 summary was clear on this point, saying, "We judge the virus was not developed as a biological weapon." Chan, who co-wrote a book about the search for COVID-19 beginnings. Said that lab accidents happen surprisingly often. She added, "A lot of people don't really hear about lab accidents because they're not talked about publicly." Chan suggested that such accidents show there is a need to make work with highly dangerous pathogens more transparent and more accountable. Last year. The World Health Organization recommended a deeper investigation into a possible lab accident. Chan said she hopes the latest report leads to more investigation in the United States. I'm John Russell. TikTok has added new tools designed to give parents more control over their children's use of the popular video sharing app. The new tools were announced as several nations moved to ban TikTok on government devices and considered other possible actions. The governments said they acted because of national security concerns. Several U.S. government agencies have warned that TikTok's owner, Chinese company ByteDance, could be sharing user data with China's government. Critics of the app have also said China could use TikTok to spread misinformation. 
Legislators in the U.S. and Europe have also raised concerns about TikTok's content, suggesting it could harm the mental health of young users. ByteDance has long argued that it does not share data with the Chinese government, and has stated that its data is not held in China. The company also disputes accusations that it collects more user data than other social media companies, and it says ByteDance is run independently with no influence from the Chinese government. More than two thirds of American teenagers use TikTok. The app is intensely popular because it can influence many areas of popular culture, but many parents have struggled to find a way to effectively limit the amount of time their children spend on the app. TikTok described the new safety tools in a statement published Wednesday on its website. The statement said the tools aim to assist young users and families in creating positive experiences as people express themselves, discover ideas, and connect. The changes include a default setting that limits TikTok usage to one hour each day for users under the age of 18. When the tool goes active in the coming weeks, young users of TikTok will receive a message after 60 minutes. They will then be asked to enter a passcode and make an active decision to keep watching. For accounts where the user is under the age of 13, a parent or other responsible adult will have to set or enter an existing passcode to permit an additional 30 minutes of watch time. TikTok said it decided on the 60-minute limit after receiving advice from child researchers and experts at the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston Children's Hospital. TikTok and other social media apps have faced criticism for not doing enough to protect young users from inappropriate or harmful content. A recent report by an anti-hate group suggested algorithms used by TikTok to keep users on the app can have harmful effects. The report by the nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate said some algorithms suggested videos about self-harm and eating disorders to young users. TikTok also said Wednesday it will begin sending messages called notifications to young users, suggesting that they set up a daily usage limit if they decide to opt out of the new 60-minute limit. In addition, the app will expand offerings designed to give parents detailed information about their children's overall usage. This tool includes data on how long a user spends on the app, 
the number of times TikTok was opened, and a breakdown of total app usage during the day and night. One existing TikTok safety tool sets accounts to private by default for those between the ages of 13 and 15. In addition, direct messaging is only available to accounts belonging to users who are 16 or older. This week, the U.S. and Canada issued orders banning the use of TikTok on government-issued devices. The European Union has also barred use of the app on all employee devices. Taiwan banned TikTok on government devices in December, and in 2020, India placed a ban on TikTok and a number of other Chinese apps. Because of privacy and security concerns, I'm Brian Lin. Brian Lin joins me to talk more about this week's technology report. Thanks for being here, Brian. Sure, Ashley. Thanks for having me. This week's report dealt with some changes TikTok just announced that are aimed at giving parents more control over their children's use of the app. That announcement came after several nations, including the United States and Canada. Moved to ban TikTok on all government devices. From what you understand, Brian, how important are the latest app changes announced by TikTok? I would say these changes are not completely unimportant, but in my opinion, the timing of the announcement says a lot. As you mentioned, it came the day after the U.S. and Canada took action to ban TikTok on government devices. So ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, was clearly looking for some good publicity after wide media coverage of those moves. And today's report mentions additional legislative measures being prepared that could end up further restricting TikTok even more. Are these latest changes likely to make any difference with those efforts? Well. It's hard to say for sure, but that's not very likely. I would say, in the U.S., lawmakers from both political sides have repeatedly called for legal actions against social media companies, and not just TikTok, but also Google and Meta, for not taking responsibility for the harms these kinds of apps can cause. So the biggest concerns are that the tech companies have not done enough to protect the privacy of users and to prevent misinformation from appearing and being spread on their apps. So how likely is it that the American government would seek to take additional actions against TikTok, such as banning the app generally in the country? I would say it is very likely we could see additional measures specifically against TikTok. 
In fact, a new legislative bill is expected to pass in the U.S. Congress in coming days, that goes so far as to give President Joe Biden the power to ban TikTok nationwide. But whether Biden would actually do that if the bill receives final approval remains an open question. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining me on the program today, Brian. You're welcome. Thank you, Ashley. And now we present the making of a nation. Theodore Roosevelt became president of the United States in 1901. He firmly believed in expanding American power in the world. To do this, he wanted a strong navy, and he wanted a way for the navy to sail quickly between the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. Roosevelt decided to build that waterway. Today, Ashley and I tell the story of the Panama Canal. For many years, people had dreamed of building a canal across Central America to link the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. The most likely place. Was at the thinnest point of land, Panama. Another possible place was to the north, Nicaragua. President Roosevelt appointed a committee to decide which place would be better. Engineers said it would cost less to complete a canal that had been started in the 1880s in Panama. But the United States would have to buy the land and building rights from a French company. The price was high, more than one hundred million dollars. So the committee decided it would be less costly overall to build a canal in Nicaragua. The proposal went to the United States Congress for approval. The House of Representatives quickly passed a bill to build the Nicaragua Canal. Then the French company reduced its price for the land and building rights in Panama. It decided some money was better than no money at all. President Roosevelt was pleased. He gave his support to the Panama Plan. When the Senate began debate, however, it appeared the Nicaragua plan would win. Then a volcano exploded in the Caribbean area. A city was destroyed. Thirty thousand people were killed. Soon, reports said another volcano had become active and was threatening a town. The volcano was in Nicaragua. Nicaragua's president denied there were any active volcanoes in his country, but one of Nicaragua's postal stamps showed a picture of an exploding volcano. That little stamp 
weakened support for the Nicaragua Canal. The Senate passed a bill for a Panama Canal instead. The House of Representatives changed its earlier decision. It approved the Senate bill. At that time, Panama was a state of Colombia. Canal negotiations between America and Colombia did not go smoothly. After nine months, the United States threatened to end the talks and begin negotiations with Nicaragua. The threat worked. In January 1903, Colombia signed a treaty to permit the United States to build the Panama Canal. The treaty gave the United States a canal zone. This was a piece of land ten kilometers wide across Panama. The United States could use the canal zone. For one hundred years, in exchange, it would pay Colombia ten million dollars, plus two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. The United States Senate passed the treaty within two months. The Colombian Senate rejected it. The Colombian government demanded more money. President Roosevelt was furious. He saw the issue in terms of world politics, not simply Colombia's sovereignty. He said, "I do not think Colombia should be permitted to bar permanently one of the future highways of civilization." Roosevelt was ready to take over Panama to build the canal. That was not necessary. A revolt was being planned in Panama to gain independence from Colombia. The United States made no promises to support the rebels, but it wanted the rebels to succeed. Under an old treaty, Colombia had given the United States the right to prevent interference with travel across Panama. Now the United States used the old treaty to prevent interference from Colombian troops. Several American warships were sent to Panama. The local leader of the Panamanian revolt was Manuel Amador. Amador had the support of the French company that still owned the rights to build the Panama Canal. The chief representative of the company was Philippe Bunau Varia. He worked closely with an American lawyer, William Cromwell. Bunau Varia and Cromwell provided Manuel Amador with a Declaration of Independence, a constitution, and money. Amador used the money to buy the support. Of the Colombian military commander in Panama City, the capital, he also got the support of the governor, who agreed to let himself be arrested on the day of the revolt. Amador formed a small army of railroad workers and firefighters. 
The rebel army planned to take over Panama City on November fourth, nineteen o three. Just before that, five hundred Colombian soldiers landed at Colon, eighty kilometers away. The soldiers could not get to Panama City, however. All but one railroad car had been moved to the capital. Manuel Amador gave a signal. The revolution began. There was a little shooting, but no one was hurt. Most of the shots were fired into the air to celebrate the call for Panama's independence. Colombian officials were arrested quickly. Then Amador made a speech. He said, "Yesterday we were slaves of Colombia." Today we are free. President Theodore Roosevelt has kept his word. Long live the Republic of Panama! Long live President Roosevelt! Colombia asked the United States to help it regain control of Panama. The United States refused. It said it would oppose any attempt by Colombia to send more forces there. The United States also recognized Panama's independence, and almost immediately, it started negotiations with the new government on a canal treaty. The two sides reached agreement quickly. The treaty was almost the same as the one the Colombian Senate had rejected earlier. This time, however. The canal zone would be sixteen kilometers wide instead of ten, and the United States would get permanent control of the canal zone. The treaty was signed on November eighteenth, nineteen o three. That was just fifteen days after Panama declared its independence. Colombia protested. It said the United States had acted illegally in Panama. Many American citizens protested too. They called President Roosevelt a pirate. They said he had acted shamefully. Some members of Congress questioned the administration's deal with the French Canal Company in Panama. Several investigations examined the deal. Theodore Roosevelt did not care. He was proud of his success in getting the canal started. He said, "I took the canal zone and let Congress debate, and while the debate goes on, so does work on the canal." It took ten years for the United States to complete the Panama Canal. The first ship passed through it in August 1914. In that same year, the United States signed an agreement with Colombia. The agreement expressed America's regret for its part. In the Panamanian Revolution, and it provided a payment of twenty-five million dollars 
to Colombia. Theodore Roosevelt was no longer president when the agreement was signed, but he still had many friends in the Senate. He got them to reject it. After Roosevelt's death, the United States signed another agreement with Colombia. The new agreement included the payment of twenty-five million dollars. It did not include the statement of regret. The Senate approved the new agreement. The issue of America's involvement in Panama caused much bitterness in other countries of Latin America. Some did not feel safe from American interference. President Roosevelt said the United States would not interfere with any nation that kept order and paid what it owed. Roosevelt was worried because some Latin American countries were having difficulty repaying loans from European banks. He did not want the issue of non-payment used as an excuse for European countries to seize new territory. In the Western Hemisphere, Roosevelt said the United States was responsible for making sure the debts were paid. His policy led to further United States involvement in Latin America. And that's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson, and I'm Dan Novak.